0: Good morning. It is so good uh, to be with all of you this morning. It's been several months since I've gotten to preach, and to be honest, I've just been itching to get back and to be able to open uh, God's Word with you all. Uh, I simply just ask if I could have this passage, if I could preach this, because I love this passage, and uh, it speaks to me. It's what encourages me, and I hope uh, that God uses it to speak to all of y'all as well. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 4. As John said, we're continuing in the Gospel of John. If you don't know where that is, try to find Matthew about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. and Go to John. Keep flipping forward until you get to John. We're in chapter 4. And the best way to read this one is just we're going to go back and forth. We're going to read a chunk. We're going to talk about it. We're going to read a chunk, talk about it. So just be prepared. We're just going to kind of let it unfold and see what God has to say to us through it. And because of that, if you're familiar with this passage, if you're familiar with this story, do your best to forget everything you know about it. Just let God speak to you with the way that it unfolds. With the person that we're with in this story, how they start to learn, how they start to see who God is, do the same thing with them. So whenever I was little, my favorite story in the entire Bible was the story of Samson. I loved the story of Samson. And it makes sense whenever you're a small boy because, if we're being honest, Samson is basically a superhero. He, he's super strong, and he fights all these people, and there's basically a villain character, and then, uh, despite all odds, he comes back and he's victorious, right? I loved the story of Samson. And then I got into high school, and I read the story of Samson, and there's like a scene where he... Uh, beats something like 300 people with a lamb jaw or something like that. I'm like, dang, this is basically a singing out of Braveheart. This is awesome. I love the story of Samson. And then I get into college, and I remember there was a time that I was really kind of discouraged, and I really uh, needed God to speak to me in some way. And for whatever reason, I still turn to the story of Samson for encouragement. If you need to be encouraged, don't read Samson, because it was in this moment that I realized Samson was an awful person. Like, he really was not good. There's nothing really very encouraging about the story of Samson, other than the fact that despite him being a bad person, despite all of his failures, God still prevailed. God still is able to redeem and use the time of Samson's rule for great things, but that's our encouragement in that piece. There's not a gentle person. There's not somebody coming and talking. There's no encouragement. There's not really anything that we can glean from it that we say, oh, this is, this is what God is to me. This is how God speaks to me. What we get from it is that God, despite Samson being a terrible person, is still God. But that's what drew me to the story that we're talking about today in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, is we do get to see God. We get to see his gentleness, his love, his care for all of his people. So rewind to last week. We were in John chapter 3, and the most, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. You can say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So what that is saying is God loves the world in this way that he sends his son. And it's no mistake that that passage comes before the one that we're in today, because we're continuing to see that this is the way that God loves the world. I love the world in this way, that this is how I'm going to show it. So read chapter 4, verse 1 with me. We'll go through verse 6 to start. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, this is John the Baptist, Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So the first thing I want to look at is it says that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. Jesus had to travel through Samaria, but if you look at a map, kind of, but not really. So he's in Judea and Galilee is up here, and it's the most direct way to get to Samaria. But the Jews, Jesus was a Jew, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. They did not like each other. It was completely countercultural for them to be seen together, let alone talk with one another. So <clears throat> anytime somebody was traveling from Judea to Galilee, whether it be a Jew or a Samarian, Samaritan, they would go around. They would intentionally avoid one another. They wouldn't take the most direct route. They made their own route to where they would go around to avoid having any, any interaction with these people. So Jesus didn't really have to But there was a calling that he did have to. Because we start to see Jesus' intentionality at the very beginning of this story that he had to travel through Samaria. There's a reason that he had to travel through Samaria. It wasn't because it was physically the only way to get there. It was because there was something greater at play that was happening. So the reason that the Samaritans and the Jews didn't like each other very much is rewind to the Old Testament. And after the rule of Saul, Israel split into two kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom, the capital of it, was Samaria. And the southern kingdom, they just started, they kept drifting apart. They had more and more issues. After the exile in Babylon and Assyria, they started marrying different people, and they just formed different beliefs. But think about it, whenever we really stop to think about rivalries, Typically, rivals have more in common with one another than they really do differences. So let's stop and think like UT and OU, University of Texas and Oklahoma. Okay? There's really not a whole lot of difference. It's two states that, whether we like it or not, are really pretty similar. Don't tell them I said that. Texas is far superior. But you have major university in these similar states. They're about the same size. They're equally as bad right now, I mean, they're in football, uh, you know, they're, they're really pretty similar. They have a lot of the same people, they have a lot of fans across the nation, and we can draw a lot more similarities than differences. So it's the same thing here. The Jews and the Samaritans believe pretty much the same thing, just with a few differences sprinkled in, but they can't get past those differences without what's caused this major division. But see, we're going to come to see that Jesus doesn't care about that division. He doesn't care that there's these differences, these cultural regulations, that he can't go through Samaria. See, whenever Pastor Bedford was here a couple weeks ago, something he did that I absolutely loved he stopped in the middle of a sermon to get to know people on the front rows. He asked them questions. He was intentional with everybody in here. I'm like, man, that is awesome that he is actually interacting with people while he's preaching. Because it's so easy to coast whenever you're up here, that, you know, I'm talking at you and not with you, right? And I'm reading a book right now, and a pastor gives an example of that because of the production style of his church, that he literally has a box of surgical tape where he has to stand because the spotlight is on him. And so like Pastor Bedford was doing, he wanted to interact with his congregation. He wanted to do an illustration with somebody on the front row. So he leaves his box of surgical tape, and everybody in the tech booth starts motioning him back. Get back. Get back. Get back to your spot. And it apparently gets to the point where it was audibly to the point that people were looking behind at the tech booth to see everybody saying, get back. Get back. Get back to your spot. We can't see you. Get back in the spotlight. He was literally taped into a box. Jesus had the same thing, but like Pastor Bedford, he didn't care. He wanted to have interactions with people. He wanted to be intentional with his time, and that's why he went through Samaria. So we also see at the end of verse 6, this is a lot of buildup, but it makes a lot of sense whenever we see it later, that it was about noon. Again, that's very important. Noon isn't really a time to be at a well. Noon, as we know, is the hottest time of day. Whenever I first got to Waco, <coughs> excuse me, whenever I first got to Waco, I had been here about a week, and believe it or not, I was really having difficulty adjusting from the weather up in the panhandle to Waco. And I was talking with Mr. Klander over here, and I told him, like, yeah, I tried to go for a run about 8 o'clock this morning, and i used to going three, four miles, and I could barely make it One. He goes, yeah, that's because you were three hours too late. So you were three hours too late or ten hours early. You need to be there five in the morning or eight at night. He's actually right. But it's the, same, it's the same way whenever they're going to the well. About six or six was the time that they would go to the well. Still light, but it's nice and cool. Noon was the worst time of day to be there. But again, Jesus is there for a reason. So then let's we'll start in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? Asked a woman. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, give me a drink. You would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman. Notice we went from Jew to sir. After one response, sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it, himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never get thirsty again. The water I will give him will become a well, a water springing up in him for eternal life. So, here we see that Jesus was intentional getting to this certain spot at this certain time, and now he's starting to show them, show this woman at the well, who he really is. You see, I put the emphasis on Jew there for a reason. In the original Greek and the original language, we see that. Where it is, there was probably some sort of emphasis that she said, a Jew. Again, because there were these differences that they weren't even supposed to be talking to one another. Let alone a man and a woman, but a Jew and a Gentile weren't supposed to be talking to one another, but Jesus didn't care. He was bursting through that tape, and he was saying, hey, give me a drink, which would go on to lead to even greater things. And he again starts showing who he is whenever he says that he would give her living water. Jesus is the source of life, and that's what he's getting to. She's coming to this well for fulfillment, for sustenance, but the water that she gets is going to run out. She's going to get thirsty again. She's going to need water yet again. Just like if she had gone for food, the food would run out. She would need to eat again. If she had gone there to take a nap for whatever reason, then she would wake up and she would get tired again. And Jesus is saying, whatever it is that you're going after, it's going to run out. However, I am not. I am the living water, the source of eternal life. But she doesn't quite get it. She says, you came here for water, this living water, but you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get this living water? here? You're, you're at this well. The well is deep. We think it was probably at least 100 feet deep at the time. How is he going to get water? He doesn't even have a bucket. But this is pretty similar to what we saw last week with Nicodemus. Even though these are two very different people, Nicodemus was a person of high social status, and this woman was probably very low social status, they were both getting to Jesus at times that they wouldn't be seen. Nicodemus didn't want people to see him because it would question his authority. It was countercultural for him to be talking to Jesus because he was supposed to know all of these great things. This woman just didn't want to be around people. For whatever reason, we'll see that later on, she didn't want to be around people because she was a social outcast. But Nicodemus was confused whenever Jesus told him that he needed to be born again. And he said, How am I, an old man, supposed to crawl back in my mother's womb and be born again? And he, Jesus then tells this woman, I am the living water. Take from me. She goes, But you don't even have a bucket. They don't get it, right? They're taking all of these things literally. Jesus is showing them, This is who I am. I am life. I am renewal. I am redemption. They don't quite get it yet. They need Jesus to keep coming to them and continue in his intentionality to show them that he is the life. But after this, her speech softens to sir. We went from a Jew to sir. Again, the woman is here for sustenance. She needs to drink again, but she's going to realize that whenever she truly encounters Jesus as she will never need life again. And that's what he's telling her. That never runs out, but a spring, a well of living water. And so we've seen Jesus' intentionality. We've seen him say that he is the source of eternal life. And then now we get to see his love, his compassion, his care, his knowledge, all these characteristics on full display. So start in verse 15, the woman says, Sir, the woman said, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come to draw water. Again, she's, she's thinking literally she doesn't want to have to come back to the well. And We keep seeing her, she's at a different time, she's not wanting to have to come back to the well. There has to be some sort of reason that she's avoiding people like this, that she doesn't want to have to keep coming to this place. We see that in verse 16. Jesus says, Go call your husband and come back here. Verse 17, I don't have a husband. She answered. Jesus says, You have correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. See, she had been with five men before and now she's with somebody we would assume they're probably living together but they're not married and so she's been with six people and now all of a sudden jesus is the seventh man in her life we see seven as a number of completion it's all coming together that you know in this society she probably didn't have the ability to end a marriage She probably did not have the ability to leave a man. So if she had been with five different husbands, she had likely been left and abused and beaten. We can only imagine what this woman had gone through. Some of it may have been her fault. Some of it may not have been. We don't know. We we know very little about this woman other than what we see. But what we do know is that she had been outcast from society because of this issue, because Excuse me. because she had been with multiple men. Again, Jesus doesn't care. He goes to her, and he tells her all of these things about her. They had never met. It wouldn't make any sense for them to have met her from different places. One's a Jew, one's a Samaritan. There's no way. But he tells her all of these things about her. So in 2016, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series, for the first time since 1908. It was a huge deal that for the first time in 108 years, the Chicago Cubs have finally broken the curse and had won the World Series. Took the world by storm. We see it on the news, all kinds of stuff. The curse is over. 108-year drought is over. But something that got just as much, if not even more, attention was a story that came about a guy named Michael Lee in his senior quote in his 1993 year book said, you heard it here first, the Chicago Cubs 2016 World Series champions. It's a big deal. People are like, whoa, this guy predicted it 23 years in advance and he got it right. Well, yeah, he predicted it, but the Cubs best player was born in 1992. So he didn't really have any way of actually knowing that the Cubs would pull this out. You know, it was a blind guess that he got lucky, but we're like, man, this is awesome that 23 years in advance, he got this right. So if we're that blown away by a blind prediction, imagine how amazed this woman was whenever, he, whenever Jesus knew all of these things about her life. See, Jesus is different than the people that knew all of these things about her because they Cast her out of society and Jesus is going to her. And that's why she's there at the worst time of day is because she's wanting to avoid these people. Jesus was not having the same reaction as everybody else, but he approached her with love and care and compassion. So all of this, we see completion, fulfillment, omniscience. Jesus knows everything about her and her response is this, verse 18, sorry, verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. He's given her all of this information, said I am the living water, and her response is that he is a prophet. So she's not necessarily wrong, but she's also not right. One of my friends puts it this way, of that if he came up, pulled in a Ferrari, and came out, he got, he got people to go and look at his Ferrari. It's a brand new 2022 Ferrari. He paid millions of dollars for it, has all these bells and whistles, goes super fast, all this great stuff, takes people out and goes, hey, look at my cup holder. Wouldn't be wrong. It does have a cup holder. But he's also not right. And that is so much more than a cup holder. It's the same thing here. She's saying, oh, you're a prophet, and she's not wrong. She's in the driveway, but now Jesus is trying to get her in the garage of, yeah, I am, but I'm so much more than just a prophet. But see, she's she's learning. She's progressing, we went from a Jew to sir to a prophet. We're softening, we're learning, we're understanding progressively. So now Jesus is re-emphasizing that he is the fulfillment. Because another difference between the Jews and the Samaritans were that the Samaritans only read the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe anything else was the inspired word of God. And so that kind of messed up the predictions of the Messiah to come and the prophets and the writings. And so Jesus then goes on to say in verse 21, Believe me, woman. An hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So there's a lot that we can unpack there, but Jesus is saying, God is spirit, you can worship him anywhere. It doesn't have to be just what we see in the first five books. I have come, and I have fulfilled all of that. You can worship me anywhere because my spirit is everywhere. You can worship God wherever you are, in any capacity that you can. He's not limited to this one spot that you think you have to worship. So again, the woman's almost there. In verse 25, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. So she tells the Messiah, I know that the Messiah is coming, right? She's almost there. She's getting it. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus tells her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So he revealed it to her progressively, and she understood it progressively until we finally get to the point that he says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And then jump to verse 28. She's so excited, she forgets the priest that she even came to the well. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Imagine going to Whataburger, getting your food, and then you're so excited about something that you leave your Whataburger. That's unfathomable. I cannot imagine leaving my sweet and spicy bacon burger behind, okay? That's a big deal. She left her water to go tell people, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Is it he? Is he not the Messiah? He knew everything about me. She couldn't help but in her excitement, go tell everybody about him. And so now we as the readers see who Jesus truly is. This is his character. This is who he is. He's shown it to her, and we as the readers are seeing it fully on display that he is intentional. He's going to come to us whenever we need him most. He doesn't care about the boundaries that are there. He's going to to come to us, he's going to save us, he's going to show us his love, his compassion, his care, that he knows everything about us, that he knows the time that we need him the most, that he's going to break through all the walls, he's going to tear everything down to show us, I am he. I am the Messiah. I'm the one who has come for you. So you may be sitting here thinking, I could really use an encounter like this. That's great for, for this woman. Awesome. But I could really use an encounter like this with Jesus. And to be honest with you, I've been there before too. I read this story for encouragement, and I just often think, man, I could really use this encounter with Jesus like this. I could use him to come to me, tell me everything about me, and give me the same excitement that he gave this woman. So around a year ago, I, I had what I considered to be genuinely one of the worst days of my life. Of I had, had a lot of mental health stuff really come to a head, and I'd had essentially a medicine kind of go haywire on me and did the exact opposite of what it was supposed to. And so I forced myself up, forced myself to go to class, and just was not firing on all cylinders. Could barely think, could just could barely function. And so in between classes, I just go and sit in the hallway and just can barely barely do anything. I'm sending texts that I don't even remember sending at this point uh, to people trying to express what's going on. And I'm sitting there saying, God, send somebody. God, send somebody. God, show me that you are still here with me when things feel hopeless, when I feel like I am completely alone. God, send somebody. And so then, walking up, I see a friend whose name is also Robert. And our standard encounter was, he would say to me, howdy, neighbor. We, we live two doors down from each other. Howdy, neighbor. I'd say, hi, Robert. And he'd go, hi, Robert. And uh, then he would usually say something along the lines of, I'm just peachy today. But whenever I didn't give him the standard, hi, Robert, hi, Robert, back, he realized that something was wrong and stopped and said, what's wrong? And I knew at that moment that God had said exactly what I was asking because Robert's a pretty particular person. He likes to be in the same spot in class. He wants to be a certain distance from the professor so that he can hear them and that he can see them well. And he likes to be positioned well that he can get everything out of class. And he's on his way to class and he stopped and said, what's wrong? And then stopped and sat down and listened to everything I had to say and made sure I had somebody coming to pick me up that I could get home okay, text me later that night, and made sure. And I told him a couple days later, I went over to his apartment, and I just thanked him for taking that two minutes to come and check on me and talk and listen. And I just thanked him for that time. He said, you know, my instinct was to go to class and get to my spot. Especially with that professor, he moves around a lot, so I want to make sure I can hear him. That was my instinct. And then I stopped to think, well, is that what Jesus would want me to do? Would he want me to go and get my spot? Or would he want me to sit down with you and listen to what was going on and to help you through this time? And that was my encounter with Jesus at the well right there. And so I can't promise that for you Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing today, if you need an encounter like this, that that's something like that exactly is going to happen. But I know that God delivers, and I know that he is the Messiah that he claims to be. He shows it clearly right here. So take time. Sit with this. Go to Jesus, because she came to Jesus also. Go before him, because this is the same Jesus that was telling everything about her that lives in us now, that he, like he tells her is here, in spirit, that we can go to him whenever, wherever, and he doesn't care about any tape on the floor. He doesn't care about any cultural boundaries that are preventing him from coming and showing his intentionality, his love, his care, his compassion, that he knows everything about us. That's the Jesus that came to the woman at the well. That's the Jesus that came to me on one of the worst days of my life. And that's the Jesus that is with us now, forever, and always.